day by day, another war goes on. Tell me where I'm going. Oh, oh, what's the future showing? Oh, oh, where I'm going. With all that's going on, where are we getting? Day, day out. A little boy.
All right, and welcome to Weekly Review. We're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. I'm joined here by Mason. Mason, thanks for being here. Yeah, Roman, thanks so much for having me. Yay, your voice sounds really good in the microphone. <laughs> Thank you. We had a, a bit of trouble, or I should, yeah. The Anyway, that's the station. <laughs> I tend to talk a lot when I should maybe keep things to myself on the air. <laughs> um, yeah, so you've been on the show a few times before, and really grateful to have you back. Yeah, I'm so glad to be back. I feel like a, like a lifetime has passed since the last time I was on the show, so I am really excited to catch up today. Yeah, so uh, feel free to um, fill us in. I know one thing I was hoping we could talk about would be the Hormel Center Mm -hmm. at the San Francisco Public Library, which has put on some really great events. Yeah, I'm currently the inaugural fellow at the James C. Hormel Center. Um, I received a fellowship from the Friends of the San Francisco Public Library to kind of bring them into the 21st century. Mm. Um, We were noticing that there was kind of an intergenerational gap between library patrons and the materials that we actually have on site. A lot of people don't recognize, when they think archives, you know, they think like papers or academic research. They don't realize that we have a whole variety of things, multimedia things. We actually have adult magazines. Mm. We have like erotica. We have... um, uh, stencils from ACT UP. We have all sorts of like things that are really kind of crucial and relevant to what's going on politically, but they're just artifacts, and we don't think of them as artifacts. You know, flyers and stuff, we get flyers every day, or handbills or things mm-hmm. of that like, but in the future, those things will be worth something. So I was brought on to kind of steward the kind of my generation and the middle, the kind of lost generation, what's referred to as the lost generation, the group of folks who were young enough to remember the AIDS epidemic, but weren't old enough to be physically impacted by Mm. it. Um, Just to kind of bring us up to speed to make sure our histories don't get forgotten and people realize how important it is to archive our histories today. Yeah, definitely. And I really appreciate some of the art exhibits. I think one of the first times I remember going to the center was for the Degenerates had mm-hmm. an art exhibit. I think that was last year. Yeah, that opened last year in, I think, March. It mm-hmm. opened on St. Patrick's Day. It was actually a really funny, interesting group. The day that opened up, it was a bit of revelers who had come in from Civic Center who were very confused, but like really into the art. And then the DGs following, the Degenerates kind of people and like the people who were there to see the art. And it's actually interesting that you bring that up because there's a lot of controversy around that and kind of talk about like what does it mean to talk about art and politics today as they happen, even if those subjects can be considered controversial. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine, I guess, to an extent that, that the, those conversations could always be considered controversial mm-hmm. based on, who, I mean, who is to say it? Like for, for my, I can only speak for myself, certainly, but I was super, super grateful to see that exhibit and it was knowing some of the folks involved, I, it meant a lot to see their work on display. And that's kind of my impetus for inviting them to submit their work because it is a submissions process. Like mm-hmm. they are required to fill out paperwork and to go through the formalized SFPL process of getting their work put in our gallery. And so I was I was when I got their submission, I was like this needs to be here. This might push some buttons and this might be controversial, but this is relevant to the community that I've been brought on to serve, so why not have them displayed you know we also got so much positive feedback from the community as much negative attention as we received and we received negative attention for months honestly Mm -hmm. from all over the world and that was what was wild to me as far as Malaysia Australia New Zealand Mm -hmm. Belfast 
uh, London. We were getting emails and calls and things and letters from all over the globe, kind of just decrying the really important messages that the community and who actually lives in San Francisco needed to see. And so that's the only reason we kind of didn't buckle in terms of moving things around or entirely changing things was that so many of our youth, we run a youth program, or oh. it was formerly a youth program, now it's all ages actually, it's intergenerational, called Sprightly. And a lot of the youth who attend Sprightly had told us how important it was to see like the words Black Lives Matter, or to see Queers Never Die. Mm-hmm. Um, how important it was for them to receive those messages in the library, because they feel safe in the library. And for me, that was the whole reason we did the exhibit, was yeah. to be like, this is what's going on, this is how we protect ourselves, this is what we stand for. And just to see that actually have an impact on the people we were making it for mm-hmm. meant the world to everyone at the library. And I'm sure the DGENDERETs were equally appreciative of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that you mentioned children and youth. And I try to think back to myself mm-hmm. as a child growing up in the 80s and just how many unpleasant messages mm-hmm. you know one received or even if one is raised in a, a welcoming home, mm-hmm. you still, through the media, through politics... There, are, there were so many homophobic and transphobic messages that I think I didn't realize until later on that kind of seeped into my subconscious. Yeah, and things you just almost normalize because mm-hmm. even like you were saying, I have the privilege of having a really affirming family. My mm-hmm. family's I've been out since I was 10. My family's always been really supportive of who I am. But like you said, you're not immune to the messages that come to you at school, that come to you through the media, that come to you through all these channels that tell you, even though you and everyone around you is telling you you're doing fine, everyone's telling you you're doing something wrong yeah and that's kind of the work that archives hope to do is to allow people to know that whatever they think they're being or whatever they're being told that they think is wrong has probably been going on for centuries or or has gone on in a way that is not talked about widely and needs to be kind of learned about and that that for me is the beauty of the archives is seeing how much history repeats itself yes yeah (laughs) and i find that to be very reassuring and then also sometimes frustrating especially mm-hmm. politically where it's like we've already had this conversation or we're, we're fighting the same thing that was fought over decades ago yeah that's definitely something i encounter like i'll read um we have a collection of we have a zine library at the library and so i've looked through the kind of punk zines or the queer zines the zines that were coming out of the aids or and i'm like we're still dealing with this stuff like 20, 30 years later, mm-hmm. but it's good to know that everyone still has the same feelings about it. Yes. Like, there's still always people who are like, why the hell is this going on? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in terms of going through the archives, is there anything in particular that you have discovered that you would like to share? Um, yes. I, I dig to the archives a lot. Like, um, that's my favorite thing to do. Uh, for me, most recently, one of the things that I discovered that I was really heartened by were the Christopher Hewitt papers. And Christopher Hewitt was a AIDS, disability, and gay rights activist who was here in the 80s and was kind of a person about town. He was also a person who suffered, I'm actually blanking on the actual name for it, but it's colloquially referred to as like brittle bone disease. So he was wheelchair bound and was really kind of crucial in creating like dialogues around access in San Francisco and in specifically San Francisco's queer community. Mm-hmm. And I had not known about him before I worked at the archive and a friend of mine who was actually a friend of his when he was alive had mentioned that his papers were at the archives. And so I was like, what? 
like this person sounds fascinating and I began to look through his stuff and it was really heartening for me as someone who's disabled to see that the same frustrations I have today were being experienced by him but he was not only just kind of resigned to those being the realities of gay spaces he was actively working to change that not only in gay spaces but all over the city and also writing beautiful poetry in the process so the Christopher Hewitt papers the Sylvester papers are amazing Um, the the Chronicle style section actually came and visited us a few weeks ago to talk about Sylvester and style because not only do we have his papers but currently and I think until May we have an exhibit by a photographer named Percy Chester who had the privilege of just being a kind of woman with a camera in the 70s pre-AIDS and somehow gained the trust of gay men all over the city and was allowed to photograph them in the wild basically (laughs) and so she ran around to parties and photographed people and kind of fell in with the coquettes and other kind of weird alternative queer men Mm -hmm. and lesbian women and photographed them all and so her photos are there on display right now and like I said I think until May so yeah, the Sylvester Papers, the Christopher Hewitt Papers. We also have, I believe, the Coquettes Papers, which are really fun to look through because they're just a really colorful gang. Mm-hmm. Um, and what else? We also have Harvey Milk's Papers. They're probably something people come to see the most often. Okay. The one actually interesting thing I found in those was that he had a Jonestown connection. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's the one really cool thing I found in those papers was their is actually in Harvey Milk's papers. They're Harvey Milk and his late partner, Scott Smith. So it's like the Harvey Milk, Scott Smith collection. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a series of letters that almost read like form letters, and they're kind of bizarre, from the people of Jonestown after Harvey Milk's part, like one of his partners had committed suicide. And so they sent him all these like condolences letters, but Mm. they read like weird form letters. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and so I kind of went down a wormhole in reading those letters, and just because I am doing work on lavender involvement with the people of Jonestown, because they're actually, that's an unknown fact, is there's a huge, huge population of LGBTQ people, including one trans woman who was an out trans woman who was allowed to live as a trans woman the entire time she was in Jonestown. Um, And so that's how I learned all of this, was just like these letters. I was like, I knew that Harvey Milk had advocated for Jim Jones at one point, but I also did not know they were like actually friends in a really deep way. And Harvey at one point wrote a letter to the, I think the governor or the president or someone really high up in office in support of Jim Jones's like request to go to uh, Guyana. And so I was like, what a weird connection. Like who knew that like even... Like, as much as 1978 was catastrophic in that we lost Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk, but, like, also just about two weeks before that, several queer people died that we didn't know about. Mm -hmm. And it got me thinking, like, why don't we actually talk about this? Like, I'm sure those people had friends. I'm sure those people had community. And so that's what actually inspired me to do the work I'm doing right now, is I was like, I want to find out as much as I can about all these people. And there's actually only one book on the subject, and it was written by someone who passed away while he was writing the book. It's not <laughs> so it's so it's like not no. It, it, he passed away from a heart. I think a heart attack. Okay. So like he 
<laughs> it was his time to go. Okay. Um, but the book wasn't okay. finished by him. It was I finished see. by his mom. So like me being like, I am the keeper of the secrets and the time traveler. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping to continue the work that Michael Belfontaine was doing in mm-hmm. his work. Um, and it's a really good book. I think you can get it on online. It's called A Lavender Look at the Temple. Oh, interesting. And it talks about it basically breaks down the lives of all the queer people who are there. Wow. And some of the satellite characters, um, the satellite parishioners who like were allies to them or friends to them or who were the reasons they ended up joining the temple. Yeah. And it was actually interesting because a lot of the reasons they joined the temple, the queer people, were the reasons that like queer people now find family. And I found that really interesting. Like I was like, oh yeah, the reasons they want to do it is because they're tired of being mistreated they're yeah. tired of being fired at work mm-hmm. oh yeah the trans woman can't live as a woman she's gonna go live as a woman here okay <laughs> like it yeah it seems very logical it's sure. so really fascinating yeah that they would i mean of course people want to go where they're accepted mm-hmm. and if society at large is unaccepting mm-hmm. then and even san francisco you have to think about that most yes. of them were leaving out of san francisco so they were experiencing Ugh. such hardship even wow. in our little bubble here because mm-hmm. this was 19 the 1970s that they were like okay like let's do this i feel a family here so now i'm gonna have a queer family here and they even had other queer parishioners to interact with so it almost seems logical like heck yeah <laughs> like, Wow, that's so fascinating. Yeah, and that was all just because I was like sifting through the archives. And that's the thing, is like there's a billion stories like that. You just happen upon something or you'll see something funny. Like I learned recently the name of a f- what I think is a celebrity dog. Okay. <laughs> like um, just in passing, looking through Sylvester's papers and seeing that one of the photos said Sylvester and Greta. And I was like, oh, so that's the dog's name. Like this dog appears throughout gay history in San Francisco in several photographs. It's a really beautiful Afghan hound. Huh. <laughs> and I'm like, what a loved gay dog. Nice. <laughs> like, I appreciate so much hearing about history because yeah. it's something that we're not really taught in schools for the most part. No, and now I think I feel like they're all. introducing curriculum in some of the schools. However, for a lot of us, it really was just we have to find it on our own yeah. and just through word of mouth. And that's, that's actually, I love that you say word of mouth too because that's actually how I got kind of set on the path towards my interest in queer history was that I come from a tradition of oral spoken stories of Mm -hmm. histories of kind of just sitting around and talking and I recognize that um, oftentimes people will share and exchange information just casually and not realize that it's historic information or Mm -hmm. that it's something you need to know or that something someone told you, like a story they told you about a night out, you'll maybe eventually stumble upon it in a book. Yeah. The same night that a raid happened or the same night that like... um, like a big event happened, a big party. I love mm-hmm. things like that. Like I, I was recently at the GLBT Historical Society mm-hmm. for the unveiling of the uh, the portrait of Juanita Moore that's going to be the pride portrait this year. Oh, cool. Um, and I was looking, they have an exhibit up on Nightlife there. Oh, okay. And I happened to be standing near someone who was at a party oh, and he wow. pointed and he was like, oh my God, I was at that party. And he like named all the people, wow. even one of the unnamed people in the photo. And I was like, oh, you need to go to the front and tell yes. them. And he was like, yeah. no, I don't. And I was like, yes, you <laughs> do. This is history. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know? And so it was really funny because people don't realize that their stories and the information they're holding is valuable. Mm-hmm. Like who your friends were or where you were or if you were at a party that goes down in history as like the wildest party that happened of the era it's it's important there's people who don't have that information Mm -hmm. if the historical society doesn't have the person's 
name in the photo and you do just tell them yeah, <laughs> yeah. so in the future when someone who comes and you know wants to do an essay or a thesis on queer nightlife and kinship mm-hmm. they can come and they can see like th- these people were here yes <laughs> yeah and that makes me think about something you're saying earlier with was the collection of flyers and mm-hmm. how these days i feel for many of us we receive a lot of flyers we're like oh there's a protest happening there's a rally there's Mm -hmm. a show and i do my best not to collect things and at the same time i really like holding on to these Mm -hmm. and there's certain ones that you're like i need to keep i actually have a folder of like bizarre things and sometimes i sift through it and something that i thought at the time but now probably would maybe even be valuable that i found recently was like a flyer for lady gaga when she first came out oh wow (laughs) like for like in support of her first album when it was like Ten to twelve dollars to see her at, wow. in a night in a nightclub, Goodness. and I was like, "How funny is this? Like, yeah. and how also silly that I thought like maybe you should keep this." And then I I look at it, I guess like what now, like twelve, thirteen years later, and I was like, "Yep, <laughs> like, yeah. that's something." Well, I think now also that so many things, especially photos, are digitized. It's really important to have material items that were handmade yeah also yeah i was thinking about that recently because i'm in the process of a project um called uh chosen families and Mm -hmm. we're working a lot with photographs and kind of memory and stuff and i was thinking that i'm actually part of like the first generation who has like a hybrid of like um not only physical photographs that Mm -hmm. we have and photo albums but also lives that are very much so online yes or lives that we've had control over because I was thinking about the fact that as a trans person, I have a kind of complex relationship with photographs of me, especially older photographs yep. of me, or photographs of me when I wasn't in the space that I'm in now. Yes. And I know that I did not keep those. Mm-hmm. I know that those photos have been deleted or that have been lost or... Um, they were from times in my life where I wasn't in the healthiest place and so I don't even talk to the people who might have them mm-hmm. and so it's been really interesting because I was like oh what a mind like what a mind-blowing thing that like I have this history that has been documented this very queer publicly out life but there's just like this huge like gap mm-hmm. in it and is like is it up to me to fill in that gap so people know the story or as someone who's now living much better do i get to rewrite my own narrative Mm. and i was thinking about that because i think a lot about that because i am constantly in recovery from various things Mm -hmm. and so i like to think about all right do we do we portray what it was or what it should have been and like which is the truth and which is the lie? And so I've been thinking a lot wow. about that because in doing archival research, yeah. it's got to be the truth. And yes. so there is so much conflicting evidence that I'm like, okay, no. As a person, Mason the person wants to lie, but Mason the archivist is like, no, it's important to be yeah. truthful sure. about this narrative and track down these kind of parts of myself that no longer serve me but are a part of my history and informed who I am today. Yeah, and that also goes into the discussion of who gets to tell the history mm-hmm. and what what that is and mm-hmm. what that entails and the point of view and the perspective, which is so important for trans and queer folks to be able to have that say. Yeah, no, it is important, and I think it's really important to speak on kind of how how lives are being lived, the good, bad, and the ugly about them, because mm-hmm. it allows not only a realistic um, narrative, but a narrative that people can resonate with. No one likes 
an unflawed hero, you know? <laughs> like, like, as much as it's nice to pedestalize people and to act like they do not have faults, like, everyone is friggin' problematic. Yep. Even your favorite person, they're still problematic. I'm still problematic. Like, everyone's problematic. Yeah. And there's no avoiding that, and so I think the more we can actually honor that, the mm-hmm. less people will hide in right. secrecy about the things that they're not doing uh, to support themselves and others. Yes. Like it won't be as easy to just like pretend that stuff is not happening if we're honest about the stuff, the fact that stuff happens. Definitely. And being vulnerable and also looking into one's own behavior mm-hmm. and questioning that and understanding how we can be, how we can change to be different next time and how to continue to grow. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I feel like... And to continue to grow together. I think yeah. that's, for me, ha- over the last two years, has been the most important thing is that within my growth, as much as I love to celebrate it, I am more ecstatic about the fact that I can bring other people with me. Mm. And I think a lot about that in terms of um, relationships to nightlife and substances mm. or just like relationship healthiness. Yeah. Like the more I find myself engaging in healthy romantic and platonic relationships and friendships the more I find that the people I've got in my circle feel like they need to interrogate what's going on in their lives Mm -hmm. because it's like okay we can't all be messy forever so when someone (laughs) starts to get their act together it's like that's the person whose lead you should follow Mm -hmm. and so for me as difficult as it is to maintain that kind of like Status, it feels really nice that people trust me with that. Yeah. That people trust that I, because I know that I'm never not done mm-hmm. getting better, yeah. that um, people can trust me with their stuff. Because I think a lot about that because um, that's actually something that I found in the archives mm-hmm. was the ways in which that historically and literally financially that big tobacco and liquor industries have profiled specifically queer people of color. Mm. That's been the wildest thing to me is throughout history, advertising has deemed certain populations like more disposable if that makes sense like yeah. they use not i don't think the word disposable they is the word they use but they use a very similar word mm-hmm. like these bodies basically don't matter like these uh. bodies matter less than white male bodies or white female bodies mm-hmm. and so we need to target them because mm-hmm. they'll get hooked and no one will care when they get sick basically and it's so wild i was uh. like i had no idea uh. and then i thought about it and i thought about the fact that when i was 18 that's Actually, the first time I was offered cigarettes was mm-hmm. by like candy stripers that were sent oh. out to 18 and up clubs. Oh. And that's how a lot of people I know actually started smoking. Oh, wow. So you, yeah, it's like a weird thing. They would, they would swipe your ID and give you two packs of cigarettes. That was all you did. They, you didn't charge. You didn't charge anything. They just say, give us your ID. Oh. They swipe your ID and they hand you two packs of cigarettes. <laughs> and like and so when I was doing this research I was like oh my god they're right like I remember that and I definitely my straight friends never knew what I was talking about they would be like where'd you get cigarettes or when did you start yeah. smoking and I'd be like oh I go to the gay club they give you cigarettes at the gay club <laughs> like, and so that was interesting for me was to see that there's actually money extra money put mm-hmm. into their marketing oh, yeah. to to market it to um, both liquor and um, tobacco companies and then I started thinking about it and I was like think about who Pride is sponsored by yep Stoli- or Absolute uh, Smirnoff and Budweiser yeah and I was like oh yeah like we don't see other parades really sponsored like that yeah. they're sponsored by like the local news channel, mm-hmm. a bank. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and so it was really interesting to me as someone who's like not sober, but in a working in a harm reduction model to see the ways in which 
I have always kind of like been down on myself for like being quote unquote bad for using substances. But like I've actually been programmed by society from mm-hmm. the time I was literally old enough to go to an 18 and up club to engage in substance use. Oh, wow. And that's something I think about all the time because I'm trying to disengage from those systems yeah, yes. and finding how hard it is to continue to network yeah. in a society and in a system that is like, consume 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 Definitely. and like let's like tune out just <laughs> like drop acid and have that be that and we'll just spin around and be gay yeah and so i think it, I, that's kind of what i've been thinking about a lot lately the more i kind of work in the archives and the more i learn our history the more i feel like angry and i feel like yeah. i want more autonomy over my body yes i feel like i've been pretty autonomous in using my body mm-hmm. but then when i read these things i'm like no you're not I'm like you and like I don't fault myself for it but I'm like oh yeah they're literally making it so you are not like and is that an like I don't want to get like I put here I'm putting on my tinfoil hat now but I'm like is that an agenda oh no I think it totally is I mean like everything revolving around capitalism is an agenda where it's like they don't care we're consumers Mm -hmm. they don't care about humanity they care about a profit at the end of the day Mm mm-hmm and so that's been the most exciting thing for me is like learning things like that and being like, okay, now I like I all I can do is share this info, but people can do with the info with what they mm-hmm. please. And people who are really committed to like actually kind of moving against these systems yes. might be influenced by these things and all the things that like are being hidden from us. Like I talk about um, the Sinclair method a lot, which What's a lot that? of people, yeah, a lot of people don't know about it. It's a, it's a harm reduction model based on a specific type of therapy mm-hmm. and the use of a pharmaceutical drug called naltrexone that's okay. being basically hidden from the community. And I like want to tell everyone about it. Um, it's a, it's an opioid inhibitor, but it, uh, it kind of hampers one's like feel good receptors when they drink. Okay. So if you are working in other therapeutic modalities or are working in like kind of harm reduction models that aren't necessarily abstinence or abstinence, I know people who use it for abstinence entirely. Um, the, the drug supports you in that Hmm. and people aren't talking about it because it would put one big pharma out of business Mm. and two, it would stop the sales of liquor. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, wow. like not entirely. Like there's yeah. still, there's always going to be people who drink, yeah. like in any capacity, and that is totally fine. But there are people who are struggling in the queer community specifically, and in communities of color, mm-hmm. to manage their drinking. And that, for me, was an issue. It wasn't that I had like lost control of my life, but I needed help, and I found this medicine literally by word of mouth through another queer, and have since told several other queers who are now using the medication successfully. Mm. And it's so interesting to me, and I'm just like, okay, as much as I am like, nit fuck Big Pharma, this is like the one instance where I'm like, thanks Big Pharma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, and so yeah, things like that. Like I feel like other communities have access to like these these kind of the kind of literature and the awareness that allows them to better themselves that the queer community doesn't and Mm -hmm. so that's where I come in like I call myself like a public health punk in that I am punk in everything I do but like public health is also very punk like caring about yourself and the community that you serve because if your body isn't working how are you going to serve that community right and I say that as a disabled person whose body doesn't always work but I, I mean that in like how if we're not taking care of ourselves, how can we take care of each other? Right. Like, um, and so how can we continue to show up? And part of that for me is learning the best ways to take care of the people around me. Yeah. 
Wow, that brings up a, wow, I have a lot of thoughts about that. Yeah, what are they? <laughs> oh, um, first, I'm, I'm going to go back in my mind. And I think talking about sober spaces, especially for queer folks, mm-hmm. like wanting to create more of those spaces, I think is a big deal in terms of... The library's one. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> perfect. I mean, the events like that where it's also being accessible in terms of, yeah, accessibility and as well as financially, so not having to spend money and also making sure that it's accommodating for folks. Yeah, that's something I always think about. Um, that's something I love about the library is as a uh, basically free resource. Like we make, we create programming that is for everyone, but we make a space for people who are not being allowed space outside mm. of the walls of the library. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I do love about the San Francisco Public Library is they have done an exemplary job of making sure that to the best of their abilities, because there are still flaws in all systems, but that to the best of their abilities, their patrons are taken care of. And they do that in really tiny ways. Like most of the staff is Narcan trained. Mm -hmm. That's a very small, but really impactful way. I think over 20 people were saved at the library last year. Wow. In just a year. Wow. For like all of 2008, I think we had like between 20 and 23 people. Wow. who were narcan at the library and lived. <laughs> so, like, just something as tiny as that. Mm-hmm. Like, just just recognizing that we, at being at Civic Center, are in ground zero of a uh, drug crisis mm-hmm. and that we need to respond accordingly rather than stigmatizing or criminalizing the people who are using drugs. We need to accept the fact that our patrons are using drugs yes. and then respond accordingly right. with treatment and harm reduction models, offering sharps containers mm-hmm. in all of our bathrooms. Something That's as tiny great. as that and that's something I actually saw recently listed as an access need. And I was like, why don't more places do that? Yeah. Because that is a reality in our community. As much as we'd like to pretend it is not, there, we have IV drug users in our community. Mm-hmm. Like, and that, I'd never thought about that before. As someone who runs accessibility workshops, I was like, oh my God. I'm so fucked up. <laughs> like, you know, like I've never, I've never thought to mention that a sharp, that a building that I might be hosting at an event mm. does not have a sharps container. Yeah. This is now something that I will be conscious of. Yeah. And so it was, it's just tiny things that yeah. in, in, like really improve the quality of life of the people who are being forgotten about. Yeah. And I think that's like a really beautiful thing is that the library is stepping up that way and that they don't cooperate with ICE. Like, yeah. That's a new tactic they're trying is they're going to libraries and oh. various places and requesting um, information about patrons. That and is, unfortunately, some libraries have been giving that information over. That so um, up. The San Francisco library has no interest in playing that game. Right. And so, and it is legally okay to deny them access to that information unless there is a warrant like and so in the case of you know that that, that's about it like unless there's a warrant or a Mm -hmm. true reason to be um trying to acquire a patron's information it's not we're told not to share it and i think that's beautiful because it has happened to me and i don't even have access like even if they needed the information i don't have access to it but someone has approached me because of probably me looking younger and like more impressionable. Mm. They approached me and asked about a patron's information and I directed them to the person who was going to tell them no. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. But it's just like tiny things like that, the ways institutions can show up to support people mm-hmm. and to continue to maintain free events. Like we were actually talking before we got on the air about the Headspace event, yes. or the Headcase event that we had and how that was important, how it brought so many groups of people together to have honest and 
really intimate discussions about mental illness and talk about the work that they were doing and how mental illness affects their writing and to just see so many people both neurotypical and non-neurotypical resonate with all of that in the audience was like really cool for me yeah it was a great reading and i'll be playing uh the reading in full on the show next week so really looking forward to sharing that with folks and perhaps at the end of the show today i'll play a, a sample of it um just it was so I don't really have the words for it. Just really impactful and important mm. are the are the words that, that come to mind. And I really appreciate the folks who are able to share their stories mm-hmm. and also from the historical perspective as well and understanding how pathologized yes. uh, sexuality and gender identity have been throughout the ages. Yeah, that's actually something it. that's going on, speaking of libraries, in the library world. There's a huge debate about the Dewey Decimal System mm. and the way it's been used to kind of discuss queer lives um, because it has historically been very pathologized Mm. um, and things fall in like very medicalized categories if we're looking at anything that's not an anthology or like a biography. Mm -hmm. And so it is very strange, but people are even in recognizing this system trying to like queer it up Mm -hmm. because the system itself is actually like really flawed and... um, Dewey himself, I'm pretty sure, was like a eugenicist and like just oh, all sorts of weird no. problematic things. Yeah, look up the history of Mr. Oh. Dewey. He's another problematic white man to add to the archives. Oh, um, but anyways, so yeah. Um, but in order, like people are finally like now that we're holding people accountable, yes. even centuries later. Sure. Um, people are. Uh, there's a group of I don't remember their name but there's a group of several people who work in the library industry who are trying to kind of revamp the classifications because they are still problematic in certain ways in most ways they're listed as such but like there are certain libraries that stick to the kind of formulaic like this 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 the 100s the 200s the 300s and end up putting queer content in places that queer people are not going to find it you know because if you're not look like if you're not going to like the medical floor to look for a book on like raising a trans child yeah how are you ever going to find it right you know right but the, and then so like the the pushback is like oh we have the book and then the patron's like but i can't find it yeah and that's half of like the battle in the library is making people know the material exists because people are hungry for it yes you know books i love them as i do are expensive yes you yeah. know like yeah. you know going to the library for some people is their only access and right. that's actually what i hear a lot from elders is that was their first encounter with queerness mm. was they went to the library and they looked up homosexuality yep. and opened a book and got whatever messages they got yeah. and that's how they learned they were queer yeah and so like even still people come to our library because they say i want transition resources i want to read a story about like a a black gay woman in the northwest mm-hmm. they have very specific needs or wants or things that they want to learn about and we meet them there and i think that's like the best thing archives do is there's not enough of them there's less than 200 throughout the entire u.s fun fact oh wow yeah there's only three in california there's us we're the james c hormel center there's one and then i think another one like another giant archive but there's only three in california and you think about how big california is and how many gay people are in california yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, the entire state of california only has three and we are one of the states with more like like a high number most other states only have like one or two oh goodness (laughs) 
Wow. So yeah, that's like my thing. It's like, like I want everything to be an archive. Everyone start your archive. Yeah. Like, condo your life, but archive it too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That'd be so how did the Hormel Center start? Like can we talk about the origins of it? Yeah, I know a little bit about it. Um it came out of a desire to have a dedicated space in the library for archiving queer history because mm-hmm. there is such a rich history. A lot of people don't actually know that queer liberation started in San Francisco and LA that mm-hmm. years before Stonewall happened. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a Compton's Cafeteria riot and then a Cooper's Donuts riot in LA um, over on the West Coast. Um, so there was kind of a need to educate both Bay Area residents and scholars and academics about the contributions mm-hmm. to LGBTQIA life from San Francisco specifically. Yeah, We take content from all over the planet, <laughs> um, but our focus is primarily the Bay Area. No specific time, but just like archiving Bay Area history because it often falls through the cracks. People usually look to the East when they think um, queer liberation. They mm. look to the work that was being done in New York and that usually kind of eclipses the work that was done here. Yeah. Um, also, even in terms of AIDS research, there was it was kind of a split thing between us and New York, honestly, and uh, other part- other places that the epidemic was like raging during that time. But we started for that, and then we opened in 1995 okay. when the new library opened because when they rebuilt everything, they were like, okay, here's the gay space. Nice. <laughs> And so we have a beautiful kind of a rotunda of a room with a mural with gay figures mm-hmm. from the past and names. And yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how it started. And then there was an endowment committee, a committee, um, some of whom are still on the board. Okay. A lot of them have actually been there since the board started wow. in 95. Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, but it's just, it's, it's just a really great group of queer elders and artists throughout the community who are really committed to making sure that not only queer stories are told, but like local history is preserved. Yeah, that's excellent. Cool. Well, how about we take a bit of a break? Yeah. And we'll be back in a bit. I'm going to find some music to share with listeners here. And folks, we're listening to Mutiny Radio. We are broadcasting live here in the San Francisco in San Francisco. Um, yeah, so we'll be back in a moment. Stay tuned.
weekly review i am joined here by mason we've been having some good conversations here yeah indeed and yeah so we were going over a couple of news stories and also we could go into some current events yeah that sounds great yeah so i know you mentioned wanting to talk about uh dwayne wade yes i'm so excited um a few days ago i was looking up um i guess maybe yeah, two or three days ago. I was I like to look at the news, the good, bad, and the ugly of it, even though I know the news is filtered through a lens that is not real. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, I wanted to kind of see what was going on in the world, and I'm a big fan of Gabrielle Union's. One, I think she's like a unicorn because she hasn't aged in like 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Like 10 Things I Hate About You came out in like 99. It's like she doesn't look any older than she was. And I'm like, what have you done? Like, who who have you made a deal with? You drank the potion. Like, you know, like in Death Becomes Her. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I was like, you drank the potion. She drank the potion. Um, but anyways, I saw her and I was like, what is she up to? Mm-hmm. And because I saw her holding a rainbow flag and I was like, I know she ain't gay. Like, she's married to Dwayne Wade. Um, and then I saw that she was supporting, like, his son, mm-hmm. um, or I guess their son, uh, Zion, who is 11 and hasn't formally come out but all signs are pointing to the fact that he might be a member of the family Mm -hmm. and um, it was them supporting him last weekend I guess at the 11th annual Miami Beach Pride Parade Mm -hmm. and it was like just a really sweet story of them showing up as a family to support him which to me shouldn't seem atypical but is and too very atypical for a family that high profile yeah. to do as i was thinking about that like i love as much as i'm like radical i love trash pop culture oh. like it, it unequivocally and for no real yeah. reason maybe because it's so far from my lived experience mm-hmm. that it seems implausible and fantasy yeah um but yeah to see celebrities kind of being affirming i think the only thing that has been maybe tantamount to that level of public uh, affirmation of a queer person is like the Kardashians with Caitlyn Jenner who uh-huh. is problematic herself yeah. so like yeah. I don't need to celebrate her right. I can celebrate the Car- Kardashians affirming her and the Jenners affirming her but I'm not going to celebrate her um, but this child <laughs> I want to celebrate yeah. I'm really into the idea of celebrating a young black child who hasn't had to be co- forced to come out of the closet but Mm -hmm. is attending spaces where people who are out of the closet are and so just to see uh two parents and a sibling and a whole host of like clearly like family friends or allies or something yeah be out with this child was like really impactful for me as like a black queer because i cannot recall a time that i ever saw at least parents of color 
being publicly celebrated mm-hmm. in private our parents were affirming us left and right but i don't think i ever saw on like a national kind of this is the day's headline scale that i ever saw a celebrity parent being affirming of their child or even like on a neighborhood scale the parents that were usually being uplifted were like the p-flag parents who are usually like non-poc mm-hmm. and so for me that was always like okay like what about my parents like my parents are really cool with me being gay like why has no one ever put them on a pamphlet you know (laughs) um and so to just see this family out and celebrating this child and for me like i said the most heartening thing was the fact that his sibling is affirming Mm -hmm. i don't know why i think it's like a lot of people have various relationships with their siblings if they are not queer yes and um to just see a 17 year old likely heterosexual black boy affirm his 11 year old little brother mm-hmm. was like really heartening because that's about the age where you start like if you're going to be poisoned with toxic masculinity yeah. that's about the time it seeps into your veins and right. becomes your new lifeblood right. um so to see this boy kind of reject that and be like i love you no matter what like was just i was just like oh that's so heartening that like is really nice and that's what we need right now especially after all of the weird ways that queer black men have been dragged through the mud through the throughout this whole like tons of comics making homophobic statements Mm. and then the whole jesse smollett debacle like the way Uh. black queer men have been moving through media uh, it was really nice for me to see someone even if they're not out Mm -hmm. but who wants to go to a pride parade maybe even figuring out if they're gay like i don't care i'm here for it i'm so excited about it like can we see more of that and less like homophobic memes <laughs> Indeed. yeah definitely and it gives me some hope for the next generation too where yeah. there are younger folks being raised with yeah more supportive family mm-hmm. yeah and also it gives me hope for the people who idolize people like Dwayne Wade mm-hmm. like there are probably thousands of little boys oh, yeah. and girls all across this country yeah. and little they's <laughs> like oh, yeah. little children all across the country who are sports fans and that's actually something i talk about a lot is that people see sports as anti-gay but i think sports are actually the gayest thing on the planet i think yeah. sports are so gay yeah and yep. <laughs> um another kind of weird window into lives that are not our own for me at least sports have personally have been a way to connect with family members of mine who might not necessarily be the best queer allies Mm -hmm. but love me Mm -hmm. as their family member and that's always been an important thing for me and i think it's also a really classed thing like i can't speak for anyone but myself but i didn't grow up in a like a position of class privilege Mm -hmm. and so i felt like sports were always like a weird like yes i recognize this whole entire like setup is toxic and bad and like bad bad ways to be a man but also at the same time these men doing bad things often bring families and people who would not normally be sharing space together actually have a funny anecdote about that i was once saved from a fight by a jersey i was wearing (laughs) the actual actual frat bro (laughs) like legitimate frat president of some sort came to my rescue once when i was living in southern california when someone was going to beat me up for being queer because i was wearing a sports jersey and i was like the power of sports bonds compels you like like and it was the weirdest thing ever and i was like how weird Mm -hmm. like how really friggin weird (laughs) that this man was like not about to let me get hurt because i was wearing a 
uh, a like a 1999 Chelsea Football Club soccer jersey. Huh. So it's like a English Premier League soccer jersey. Wow. This is the only reason I probably didn't get hit. <laughs> it was because some person who was an actual member of a fraternity saw this and was like, hell no. Like, this isn't happening. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. Sports may be awful and totally homophobic, but they're also totally homoerotic and can sometimes save you from harm. Wow. <laughs> and so it's just, you know, for me, I guess that's why the Dwayne Wade story resonated. I was like, hell yes. yes. Like, that's someone who's got a platform. Yes, like, yes. athletes as hard as they work, are given platforms they don't entirely deserve. Mm-hmm. And so for him to use his platform in a very public way, you know, like, he didn't have to say anything about it. Yeah. Like, but the fact that he tweeted out, or I think he instagram storied or something, or Snapchatted, mm-hmm. somehow posted that he was proud of his son for being there. Yeah. He was like, he wasn't there because he was playing a game, I think, in, uh, like, a way. He was playing an away game. But the fact that he was like, I wish I could be there, also yeah. was like, oh, he would have been there if he was not working. Yeah. And the fact that he's letting people know his son was there and he wants to be there, that sets not a standard but it sets an example for people to kind of be aware of and i love when things like that happen is when someone recognizes their celebrity and can tweak it for good things yes yeah like, i mean what a world would yeah. be if everyone did that if everyone yeah. in a, who's a public figure was able to share you know positive and affirming messages with all their followers with their millions of followers mm-hmm. i think that would be a pretty special world and it, all the more reason just to appreciate it when it does happen yeah yeah wow I think about yeah athletes a lot and also what you're saying in terms of how people can bond over sports teams mm-hmm. and it's just so interesting and also thinking about how much money goes into building stadium that's a whole other discussion yeah. to have like they're building the new warrior stadium here and I know it's <laughs> it's gonna be ridiculous. There's uh, I think fourteen thousand seats in it or something. There's ten thousand seats wow. in the stadium, but that's not the ridiculous part. There's only nine hundred and fifty parking spots. <laughs> we really need more cars. <laughs> I think that's the most ridiculous thing uh-huh. about the stadium to me is I'm like, wait, so where is everyone gonna park? Yeah. And so I guess the city has decided that everyone is just going to take, take public lift. transit. Oh. They said we we hope that not giving people parking spaces is going to make them take transit. And I'm like, that's not happening. The type of people who are going to be able to pay to go to the new stadium with right. the new ticket prices, they aren't the type of people who take BART. Those right. people think Muni is disgusting. You know, like, they're not people, they're people who lift everywhere. Yeah. So we're going to see just more traffic. more traffic. You're going to have to start the games an hour after you were supposed to because people are going to be getting out of their lifts in a single file oh line. You know? It's going to be like the airport. I know. It's going to be like you're going to have to get like a number. You're going to get lost. People, oh. I was like, children will cry. Churros will be spilled. <laughs> like There's going to be no space to do anything. And I just, I don't know. It's so interesting to me because I do remember a time when the sports, the industry of sports ran this city and I know that as weird as that was it actually benefited the city and i recognize that the city is trying to replicate that mm. but this like the city is so much different yeah you can't actually replicate what we had in the 90s right. you can't we're not going to have like the same sort of like hoorah community sports 
ball love because the players are different you know the nfl a lot of people are protesting the nfl Mm -hmm. because of its treatment of black players Mm -hmm. so there you've lost a huge contingent of people especially specifically one of our players the niners so you've got a whole swath of people who is suddenly disinterested the warriors are doing their own thing they're always fabulous but that's like not really a san francisco team Mm -hmm. like they've always been seen as like just the bay area's team yes yeah like i mean the sacramento kings exist but i don't really follow them (laughs) so so like i consider the warriors the bay area's team yeah and so yeah it's just really weird to see how the privatization of even something like sports is affecting the city yeah that now people don't really even buy paper tickets. It's mm. like all these weird classed things. Like you have to have a smartphone to get your ticket scanned to get in oh. because they're trying to move away from paperless tickets. And like that's not in every scenario, but mm-hmm. it's, just, it's just like one of those things that like bugs me. It's like you're not thinking about the type of people who attend sporting events. Yeah. The type of people who attend sporting events are usually, if they're not sitting in like the fancy sections, are usually just pretty your average Joe people who want to go leave their job that they hate (laughs) sit around for a few hours and watch some people hit a ball or chase it (laughs) that's what they're there to do they're blue collar people they are the budweiser (laughs) like bud light people (laughs) you know they're just there or their families with a bunch of kids who can't afford to do a bunch of stuff and so the privatization of these things also strikes me as like a big part of gentrification yeah is like the things that used to bring families together now are being privatized for people who would like to pay for the experience of having a family yeah and something i think about too that's bothered me for many many years i think about like with candlestick park Mm -hmm. and how stadiums used to be named after things Mm -hmm. instead of corporations Corporations, yes and how gross it is like oh at&t park or oracle arena or all Mm -hmm. these things and how i think at&t park also just changed its name again like it has a different name and it was 3com when it opened when i was a little kid it was monster park for a while Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) so it's just like it just like someone puts their name on it changes the branding makes a new bunch of upgrades happen then the corn dogs become twelve dollars and then you're there Mm -hmm. yeah it's just like these tiny things i think about that a lot actually i think about families a lot here because i come from a larger family i think about how families have such little access to so many things that we used to have Mm -hmm. like i remember as a child there was a lot more for children to do here one and two there were a lot more children yes like i don't see really i don't really see children here like recently and now because it's springtime i'm seeing like a few little babies Mm -hmm. um but i'm not really seeing children in the ways that I used to and it's actually impacting people like yes. as someone who worked in childcare for years I lost tons of clients mm. because they had to move and mm-hmm. I couldn't move with them right. you know people had to move out of the city um, parents with children and I primarily worked with children who had intellectual or physical disabilities or life-threatening illnesses so that's the parents that were moving out mm. and it's not because they wanted to most of them were here because the city had the best health care that their children or the best um, kind of wraparound services for their children. And they had to leave. They end up leaving for like as far away as Sacramento or moving to entirely mm-hmm. different states. Mm-hmm. And then so then you have a bunch of children gone, a bunch of children who need a resource gone. And then 
when the people who provide that resource look at their numbers, they say, oh, no one wants it. We're shutting it down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's happening left and right, is we're losing actual programs that are in, yes. put in place. And so then when people do move here or people do realize their children have issues or their children do take ill, no those services don't exist yeah. anymore. <laughs> Uh, and it's such a wild thing because people don't actually see it because the people who are moving around don't need these services. Yeah. But the people who actually rely on them, who depend on them, um, can't. You know, I think it's wild that we've got Uber and Lyft, but we've yet to figure out any sort of semblance of a functional paratransit service. Mm. Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> it's never there. <laughs> like, like, how do we have thousands and thousands of cars on the road for San Francisco driving along and none of them can get their act together enough to even form a tiny committee mm-hmm. of people with wheelchair accessible vehicles who mm. can provide a service? Or why hasn't the city invested in that? Yeah. Like, this is a problem we have. Like, whether we like to admit it or not, San Francisco has tons of people who are not able-bodied living in it and tons of people who would love a ride somewhere but can't necessarily afford an right. Uber or a Lyft right. or who cannot um, deal with the six or seven air fresheners that a driver decides to put in their car. I yes. actually have to ride around in Ubers and Lyft with my face mask on a wow. good 60% of the time because Uber and Lyft have refused to kind of acknowledge that people have medical sensitivities that are t- tied to chemicals, like chemical sensitivities. Like they just don't even, tons of people have asked. And also, like, even their business model is stolen from homobiles. Right, right. Like, yeah. So, like, all these things that people are like, oh, yeah, this is so helpful. And I'm like, but what about the people that started that? And mm-hmm. what about the people that can't afford that? Or yes. what about the fact that I can, like, I can technically call an Uber or a Lyft that has, like, wheelchair accessibilities, but sometimes it costs more. Or they don't mm-hmm. show up. Or I have to wait longer. Like, those things, like, I feel like the service should be seamless for everyone. Like, yeah. I shouldn't have to wait just because I have an access need. It shouldn't be you are penalized for existing in a different way. It should just be like, oh, you need to go here at this time? I'll come pick you up. Yeah, it should be accommodating. Yeah. End of story. And so for me, that feels weird that we've mastered getting everyone who's mostly able-bodied where they need to go, yet like our paratransit system is a joke. Yeah. And we have all this money coming into the city for various things. Yeah. And all this money being spent on various things. But it's like, why isn't that a priority? Mm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah going back to what you were talking about earlier um and we can definitely get back to mm-hmm. uh transportation i'm reading a book called vanishing new york mm-hmm. which is was based on the blog and it was talking about gentrification in new york over yeah. the last few de- well pretty much it's always been gentrifying but especially within the last few decades in terms of pushing people out and evictions and whatnot and it's clearly very relatable to here in the bay area and and a chapter I was reading recently was about, I think, in the neighborhood of Chelsea, where there were a lot of folks who were living there, and they had small businesses that, mm-hmm. you know, family-owned businesses. And as the rents went up and people could no longer afford to be there, and then the businesses were bought, people no longer ha- were able to kind of look out for each other's children. So when you're mentioning yeah. children, I was thinking about that, where how... If you know who owns the shop, you can have, oh, the kids will go to the shop and you see the, you see your your neighbors grow up and you can care mm-hmm. for each other's families. And as the chain stores come in, there's not that same relationship. Or the children the get profiled. Right. You know, right. like the store you grew up going into. I feel like I resonate with that a lot. Um, when I was growing up, it was, like, it was actually wiped out in the first wave of tech gentrification in the early 2000s. But when I was a child, 
Um, and it's funny because I only remember that because the last things they were selling were boxes of Spice Girls, lollipops, and bubblegum by like the box load. Wow. And I got several of them <laughs> because they were being gentrified and they were like getting rid of everything. <laughs> um, but yeah, so in like the late 90s, early 2000s, I, I used to go to a a corner store that was across the street from the apartment complex I grew, grew up in and it was real bare bones like they technically had produce but it wasn't the produce you necessarily wanted but at some t- at some points living in a food desert that was one of the few ways we got produce yeah um and also there were other ways that we would get produce also we had a fruit man who would come which you don't see now because that's totally criminalized here it's like mm. street vending or vending out of like he literally sold fruit out of a van that he put AstroTurf in, mm-hmm. which we would never see here. But it was the, for some people in our area, it was the sole way they got fresh produce. They would get fresh corn, potatoes, tomatoes, and all their fruit from this guy who would literally just drive up to the driveway, open the van, and you'd see all the crates of food in the AstroTurf. And you'd, he'd weigh them out and give them to you. Mm-hmm. But in a food desert, that's fresh organic produce Mm. brought right to your door Mm -hmm. but it's penalized because it's not i don't know someone who's like opened a brick and mortar location and like personally pets the cow that they milk you know (laughs) like you know um so i always think about that is the way people are deprived of resources and then penalized for not having them Mm. then like suddenly criminalized for like not eating healthy or making unhealthy choices that are deemed unhealthy yeah um because they don't have access to things. Well, it's like, if you make things unaffordable, how are people going to buy them? Right. If you make thing, if you take away the fruit man, where are they going to buy their fruit from? Yeah. <laughs> like, and it's, it's always like that. Like, it's always just a subtle thing that goes missing and someone acts like it's not missing and then they tell you once you're suffering because it was missing that you were wrong mm-hmm. similar with the child, the child care thing. It's like, oh, you don't recognize that you just can hang out in the storefront of Mr. So-and-so's store or barber shop or bodega or corner store, depending on your geographic location. And basically have a free babysitter for a while. Or they'll, they'll put your kids to work. Like they would sometimes do that to me and they'd have me stock the shelves Yeah, and I do that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and it's about the economy too, where if like families can work for themselves, mm-hmm. and I mean it makes the life easier for them, and then yeah. they're put out of business, and the other chain stores come in or the big corporations come in. Yeah, and then people don't necessarily follow up with them, and then that's a whole family out of a job because right. if you know the teenage boy works the cash register, the mom oversees everything, the youngest kid sweeps stuff, stuff sweeps up the store. You know, they're they're they've created a micro economy within their already diminished like resources. Yeah. And like I think that's something I'm really in favor of is preserving those micro economies yeah. for people because that's how we survive. It's like really sick and twisted, but right now that's how people have to survive. We have mm-hmm. to rely on things like GoFundMe's or Venmo to oh, like yeah. give our friends money for yeah. like things that we should just be able to access. Like right. I recently went to a conference that I would not have attended if people hadn't crowdfunded it. Mm-hmm. And I was very open about that while I was there and people acted like it was like almost embarrassing and I was like oh no like that's normal for me like mm-hmm. what are you talking about I have at least a GoFundMe a year one or two a year mm-hmm. <laughs> for whatever various need I have yeah. but like people just don't understand that it requires so much more to thrive and survive when you don't have things yes. than it does to just have basic access to the resources like yeah. you won't need to see the doctor as much as if you can take time off work when you're sick of course yeah. <laughs> like, like if you have 
paid sick leave at your job. Yeah. If you have a job, right, you might right. not be sick as much, you know? Yeah. You know, if you have a home, you might be able to recover from your illness quicker. What a concept. Yeah. Or if you are not put in a space with other sick people, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that all comes back to bodily autonomy because we're in this whole war about like vaccinations and stuff. And I'm like, as a health nerd, a public health nerd, I am sort of terrified but also amused by the fact that we're seeing like diseases that we haven't seen in like centuries return on mass because of like pseudoscience Uh it's like wild to me and like because of this movement that is literally based on nothing but like delusions (laughs) like like nothing Mm -hmm. but like fake science um it seems really interesting to see that um all of this is coming out now and all this information is being debunked yeah but yet you still um don't see like people responding accordingly people are still under the idea that like vaccinate vaccines will give your kids autism as if that's the worst possible scenario i'm like i'd rather have an autistic child than a dead one yeah (laughs) like like, like, if i were concerned with parenting in that way (laughs) like i by you know bubonic plague or autism you know i'll take autism (laughs) it also goes back to the conversation earlier about uh public figures who have a a really large platform where you've mm-hmm. got the folks who are spreading misinformation yes. to millions of followers and I how know. reprehensible Jenny that is. McCarthy is responsible for most of this hullabaloo. Mm-hmm. Jenny McCarthy, the same woman who hosted Singled Out on MTV. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> not a doctor. Yeah, who are you getting your information <laughs> not from? a doctor. <laughs> she's not a doctor. Yeah. I don't think she's ever even played one on TV. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, like, this is not someone you should be taking medical advice yeah. from. <laughs> but yeah and so it's things like that that like i i can say for a fact if anti if the anti-vax movement had been as strong when i was a child i might not be here right Mm. now because i am someone who lives with two autoimmune disorders Mm. like and so for me it seems really simple like i recognize that people should be allowed to exercise religious freedom and bodily autonomy i believe in that wholeheartedly but i don't believe bodily autonomy extends to becoming a public health crisis right right like i feel like these people, if they should choose not to vaccinate their children, that that is a choice they can make. But I don't believe that children who are like me, who are born medically fragile or who have life-threatening illnesses, children who are cancer survivors and can't get vaccinated, you know, I don't believe those children should be subjected to the political views of the parents of the children who are like, we're never going to vaccinate you. Yeah. We'll just rub oils on you and you'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> And it's so interesting because it also comes back to like having a body. Mm -hmm. Like, what does it mean to have a body? That's the question I ask myself all the time because there's like, there's never an answer. And so it's like one of the few questions I can ask myself and I never have the same answer for it Mm -hmm. because I'm always having a different body and people always have different bodies than one another. Um, So yeah, that's like one thing I've been thinking about a lot because I saw that, um, uh, several people recently got exposed to, I think, measles Yeah, in the city because someone had traveled here and had been traveling during peak 
rush hour times and I had to like I had a moment of panic that I had because I was traveling during the days they were traveling and I had to look at like just pages of where they had gone mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were here like for a conference so they were like all around town oh, and I was like great. was I around was I on the bus then and then I had to think about people I knew who were chronically ill and I was like wait that's so and so's bus route and so you mm-hmm. know it's just like what a pain you know what would have prevented this a simple vaccination and not to say that vaccinations are entirely foolproof and you would never like you would never get it even if you had been vaccinated Mm -hmm. but the likelihood is so much lower right and so for me it seems like really kind of smart (laughs) to do especially because we know that the healthcare system is entirely garbage (laughs) like just to protect people and yeah. that's, I, th- I think that's what it is is the main thing supporting that is privilege mm-hmm. is people that don't have to think about like if that happened where would i go mm. if that happened who would be exposed if that happened how much time would i have to take off of work these aren't concerns of theirs and so i don't feel like it kind of sticks to the front of their mind like it does to mine when i think about it because for mm-hmm. me it's very cut and dry it's like i want people to be healthy yeah, yeah, definitely. It's also, I mean, just the idea that th- these problems are so avoidable. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think frustrates me so much is that going back to also what we were talking about earlier is just the repeating of history and what like what you've been finding in the archives in terms of what folks have already discussed and people have already fought for. And then it feels like in a lot of ways we're regressing. Yeah, I feel like that actually, I know I didn't really, I know we really shouldn't talk about this long, but for a little bit, I feel like that with the news of the military ban today, Mm. I feel like it feels a bit regressive to be as outraged as we are, um, or to act surprised that someone who is as bigoted as Donald Trump is would actually keep good on a tweet he made and has now made policy. Um... Yeah, for me it's very complex because I'm actually like my aunt was a vet, my mm-hmm. grandfather was a vet, my dad served in the military, so I come from a long line of military people, mm-hmm. um, and I have nothing but the utmost respect for the people who have chosen to serve and who have for either by force mm-hmm. <laughs> or by choice because that was the only choice they were given at the time as right. black people. I have compassion for that, yes. but all of them unanimously agree, those that are still alive, that this is like we even even for them as like real as straight cisgender military men and women Mm -hmm. they all agree that it's like weird to ban trans people from the military but interestingly enough the questions they had for me were why do trans people join more than cis people and i was like i actually didn't know that and i felt a little silly at that point that i did not know that information but my my relative was telling me yeah y'all join up at nearly twice the rate of he calls cisgender people regular people but (laughs) well i said straight cis man he calls them regular people (laughs) y'all join at twice the nearly twice the rate of regular people (laughs) and i like i I corrected him i told him you're not regular and i'm not abnormal but like what please explain and he was like yeah and he showed me an article that Mm -hmm. said that trans people join in droves yeah and i thought about it and i was like what why like like the government like the military is basically the embodiment of the government the government treats us like crap why would you go to like the government's house (laughs) that's what i see the military as like the the government's like moving clubhouse Mm. they just like pick it up and move it and like set it down and place it wherever they want and like they're like we play here now they're like the schoolyard bullies um 
And so for me, I was just like, whoa. And then I looked into it and I was like, oh yeah, we do. We drill in and like that could be for in a number of reasons. That mm-hmm. could be the autonomy that it provides, the stability that it provides, the delusion of financial security it uh, provides. Um, but like also when those people come out of the military, they're treated like garbage. And mm-hmm. so I think about a lot of them or the mm-hmm. people who don't make it back. Yeah. Like we know there's 176,000, I think that's the number of people currently enlisted, but like how many have like how many like is anyone doing a count of trans war casualties mm. <laughs> like is anyone doing mm. an account of um people who are now permanently disabled or who have lost limbs and are trans or lgbtq mm. i don't think so like we're only counting the people who are like standing on the front and that sure. for me sounds feels interesting yeah i mean something i think about too is like there's a statistic that 22 veterans a day take their own mm-hmm. lives so there's that and then I've, I've met a few trans veterans, and mm-hmm. I think for for a lot of folks, it was the fight. It was like their only choice in mm-hmm. a way. Where it was a financial choice that it was like all they had, mm-hmm. all they could do, or it's join the military or go to jail. That kind of yeah, yeah, or get out of poverty. Yeah, and I think also from some trans women I've spoken with, it was at the time when they didn't recognize who they were. For mm-hmm. excuse my language, I'm sure there's a better way of phrasing that. It was very much at the time they wanted to prove themselves mm-hmm. in a way, and like, to themselves, why not go yes, to the military and and prove themselves as. Yeah, no, I have yeah. friends who are trans vets, um, and friends who uh, enlisted because it's, it's an almost inverse situation. Mm-hmm. They're uh, AFAB folks mm-hmm. who enlisted because they thought, oh, I suck at femininity on the outside. Oh, <laughs> like the femininity in there isn't very feminine. <laughs> Let uh-huh. me do it in there. Got it. And I know people who left because they were in, um, not healthy foster adoptive situations and needed to leave their families. And like, that was the only way out to emancipate themselves basically through the military. And like, I get that people join for various reasons and that for many people, this is a devastating blow to their lives, to their careers, Mm -hmm. to like the lives they've built for themselves. But also I feel like the faces that have become the spokespeople for this are not the people who I'm concerned with. And so I have a real hard time investing as much in the kind of fight Mm -hmm. because the people who are on the front line speaking about it are people who are fine. Yeah, or still support the 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 war. The yeah, empire. they are they're the people who have actually who are actually like on the ground. Like I, for people who are doing you know like data transcription or translation or things like that or medical care like that, I understand. Or mm-hmm. people who are in the research aspect or mm-hmm. who are just geologists like that, I get. But the people who are like, I'm sad that you won't let me go shoot people. Mm. I have a really hard time empathizing with those narratives. Yes. yes. So as much as I support like trans people being able to do whatever they want to do, it right. always makes me pause. Cause sure. I'm always like, I actually don't like that person. Mm-hmm. Like, or like that person looks just like a white man with a gun. Mm-hmm. Why am I supposed to have sympathy for them? Mm-hmm. That actually looks like someone who might hurt me. Yes. Like, yeah. like, like, you know, like why should this person's desire to want to have always wanted to be a soldier since he was a little boy. Yeah. Why should that story take precedence over someone who's, doing this because they want to go to school or who's doing this because they want to save up for surgery or who's doing this because they're one of eight children and their mom is disabled and what the hell ever reason else they joined. Mm -hmm. Like I'm so tired of the narratives that we center in this being like the same narratives because that's a recurring theme in the trans community Mm -hmm. as we choose. I think it's like almost like fruit season. You choose like eight to 10 varieties of the fruit 
and those are the only fruit that are ever get to be in the bowl. Mm. And you just move the bowl around, mm -hmm. you know? Like Time Magazine, National Geographic, mm -hmm. Original Plumbing, like this magazine, that magazine. <laughs> you, just, you just move them around and they become the talking pieces. But oftentimes those people don't actually have the unfortunate and the marginalized experiences yes. that need to be shared. Yeah. So like for me, as someone who's living on the margins, even as a civilian, and even as someone who is very proud to support the veterans in my life, it mm -hmm. makes it hard for me to interact with it. Cause I'm like, I, even though I'm trans, I can't have, like I like, not that I can't, but I struggle sure. to be sympathetic to a cause of someone who doesn't stand to lose much yes. by being fired. They lose like a uniform and some guns. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think the thing that concerns me partially is just the, what it means for the larger sphere where what's coming next in terms of taking away people's rights mm -hmm. and, and for, in terms of transphobia yeah. where trans people can't do this what else can trans people not do yeah. you, you're not allowed to trans I think there is also uh, a piece in it where they can serve they just can't be out as who they are oh no they can't is, they aren't yeah. allowed to they also aren't allowed to enlist I was reading about it today actually mm -hmm. they aren't allowed to enlist if they've also transitioned Mm. So even if you've gone full Monty and had top surgery, bottom surgery, been on hormones for years, you're not allowed to enlist now. Wow. Yeah. So if you have ever done anything, they're talking about procedures and mm -hmm. hormones. If you've ever had an operate like surgery of any kind, like any kind of uh, gender affirming surgery or been on hormones, you're not allowed to enlist. Wow. So even people who are like post-op would pass like living stealth sure. in the middle of nowhere and want to just go yeah. be in the military, can't join now. And then people who, the only kind of limbo is the grandfather clause, which is people who join between like basically now and 2016 when he started this whole dumb, mm -hmm. stupid like stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it is, it's, it's bad. Yeah. Like for what it is, it honestly is bad, but it's also one of those things like, why do we care so much about being in the military? Mm. <laughs> like, like there are other ways that we can live and survive. And there are other ways that we can band together to protect each other and sure. to defend this country. Yeah. Like on paper is a great way to start Yeah, <laughs> with laws, with legislation, mm -hmm. with doing work on the ground to make sure we're taken care of. That's equally as important to me. Right. And I don't think that it, deserves elevating people who decide to uh, enlist over the people who are actually doing the work on the ground. Yes, like I've seen yeah. a billion op-eds with the people who are the forefront of the the trans inclusion in the military movement, but I don't really hear about the other people, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And so that always strikes me as odd. It seems almost assimilationist because we're like, yes, oh, yes. they're only worth listening to when they want to serve us. Right. And for me, I'm like, no, you should listen to me because I don't want to serve you. Yes. Yeah. Like, this is why. Like, you need to listen to what you're doing wrong. You don't just want to be in an echo chamber. And I sure. think that's what often the trans inclusion in the military movement becomes is an mm. echo chamber of people who love the military. Mm. Trans people who love the military and cis people who love the military. Mm -hmm. And as much as I support those people in their love, I like, can't support them just only speaking to rooms of people like them. Sure. I want to be able to, like I said, if I'm going to be expected to have sympathy for them, I want to be able to relate to them. And I can't relate to always wanting to go bother people in foreign countries yeah. with a gun in my hand. And it's also like, if we have the resources and clearly there's billions of dollars mm -hmm. ridiculous of course why not actually help people in this country yeah which is just 
yeah, we kind of know why. And yeah. at the same time, it's just frustrating that there's so many resources that are being used to cause harm to folks mm-hmm. elsewhere instead of help people who are here. Yeah. It's a wild one. <laughs> but yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's so wild. Yeah, it's, it's so... Um, and I, yeah, I think, I mean, I was, you know, we we're talking earlier and one thing I was thinking about, was, of course, is some of the people in positions of power who are causing harm to trans folks and like those are the enemies of mm-hmm. the people and like why why not if we're talking about enemies or people who are harming people those should be the people to go after those are the people that we need protection from mm-hmm. but yes definitely brings up a lot um anything in closing we want to go over <laughs> oh um wow just uh, I'm gonna let the, let everything sit. Um, I really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, no, this having. was a great conversation. <laughs> so much more, and hopefully you'll, you'll be able to come back another yeah, time. Yeah, I would love more. to and talk about other things. Yeah. Um, before I go, let me plug a few events. Oh though. yes, please, yes. Um, so we do have a few events coming up at the library. Um, I will. Um, we just had a really good event actually yesterday, but coming up next Thursday on April 18th, we're going to be having a show us your spines reading, which is our queer and trans people of color only writers residency. And so the writers come, uh, in the month before their reading and they work with me one-on-one to choose like a hand picked kind of selection of materials, audio, visual, text, um, ephemera, like t-shirts, pins, um, and they spend a month researching at the Hormel Center. It's a, a, a paid residency. We are really happy to have partnered with Radar Productions, and um, we now throw this residency. It's their residency, but we co-sponsor it with them, and so they have a $500 stipend for queer and trans people of color to come and spend a month in the archives learning about their history, and then the next month they read. So that'll be Thursday, April 18th, uh, from 6 30 or 6 to 7 30 and then on saturday may 11th we have a reading with amy suyoshi who's i believe the chair of the gender department at san francisco state university and so she's going to be reading about um from her new book about uh asian sexuality and sexuality in general and then the last thing we have coming up is uh it's on Tuesday, and then it's five twenty. It's it's May twenty eighth, mm-hmm. and it's the Lammy's finalist reading, oh, which wow. is going to be really cool. It's going to be all the people who were able to either fly up to the Bay Area or are local to the Bay Area and are nominated for Lammy's, which is the Lambda Literary Awards, and they'll be reading from the books that were nominated or whatever they choose to read. And so those are three really cool events coming up on April eighteenth, May eleventh, and May twenty third. Excellent. Or May 28th. (laughs) Those all sound great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being here. So, yeah, we're going to take a bit of a music break and then we'll be back to finish up the show in a little bit. So stay tuned.
If you had to wear my shoes, you'd probably take them off too. Review. I've got one more story before we end up with the show. This comes from the ACLU, who I know are problematic in certain ways, but did want to share that this one positive story for a bit, and that's Utah passed a law to protect non-citizens from automatic deportation. Uh, Utah is known for its Red Rock Canyons. Oh, 
Um, thanks, Mason, for being here. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having me. Yay. Um, Utah is known for its Red Rock Canyons, steep ski slopes, and a mega-majority Republican legislature. And now it can be recognized as one of just a handful of states to pass legislation that helps non-citizens avoid deportation if they are convicted of a misdemeanor. The bill, which was signed into law by Governor Gary Herbert on March 25th, clarifies that misdemeanor convictions in Utah can no longer be interpreted as aggravated felonies for immigration purposes, avoiding automatic deportation for a crime as simple as shoplifting. To make this happen, the bill reduces the maximum possible sentence for misdemeanors in Utah by a single day from 365 days to 364 days. In an era when lawmakers often pass splashy message bills that create little impact, the new law is just the opposite. A nuanced piece of legislation, uh, excuse me, piece of legislation that spans the twin chasms of criminal justice and immigration reform while improving the lives of thousands of Utah residents. Utah is by no means the first state to enact this sensible policy change. We now join states such as Nevada, California, and Washington that have passed so-called 364-day laws with the goal of reducing the immigration consequences of convictions for non-citizens. But Utah is one of the few Republican-led states to make this change. Utah also surprisingly reached the finish line ahead of both Colorado and New York, two states that adopted similar protections in March. Should your state try to follow Utah's lead? It's only necessary if your state defines the maximum penalty for a misdemeanor as 365 days or longer. Under federal immigration law, a state misdemeanor that carries a potential sentence of a year or more is treated as a felony for immigration purposes. This results in devastating and unintended consequences that automatically strip immigrants, including green card holders, refugees, and victims of domestic violence, of their status and subjects them to mandatory deportation. A person need not even receive a full 365-day sentence to trigger this harsh penalty. Automatic deportation kicks in as long as the maximum allowable sentence is equal to a full year or more, even if the person's actual sentence was 20 days in jail or was completely suspended. Even worse, federal law denies immigration judges any discretion on whether these harsh penalties are imposed until Congress restores discretion to consider individual circumstances before subjecting a person to deportation. The only solution is for states to clearly delineate that misdemeanors carry a maximum 364-day sentence. Despite some indications that prosecutors would oppose the bill in Utah, no resistance materialized to the bill as it passed both chambers by unanimous votes. One reason might be because this legislation removes the overhanging burden of mandatory deportation from low-level criminal trials. Defense attorneys are mandated by the Sixth Amendment to consider the potential immigration consequences of a guilty plea. Before this law was passed, defense counsel would sometimes mistakenly advise their non-citizen clients to accept a misdemeanor plea deal, not realizing that immigration consequences could trigger removal. When the mistake was discovered, desperate individuals might seek to have their criminal cases reopened. The passage of this bill removes the draconian immigration consequences of such plea agreements, increasing transparency and fairness during the trial and plea process. As more states approve laws like Utah's to protect non-citizens from these catastrophic immigration penalties, it tells the federal government that we value efficiency, fairness, and common sense in our criminal and immigration systems. It also tells non-citizen members of our community that the bedrock of our justice system, equal justice under the law, applies to them as well. And that is something that all Utahns can support. 
All right. So this article is posted from ACLU.org. You can check it out there. And we're going to wrap up the show. Coming up next is Women's Magazine with Global Val, followed by the Common Thread Collective with Global Val and Diamond Dave, and many folks who like to contribute their music, their poetry, their art, their words. Lots of good stuff happening here at the station. There are slots here available. If you'd like a show of your own, please check out the schedule at mutinyradio.fm. There's lots of great shows here also every day of the week. So listen in. Choose a random time. Look at the schedule. Lots of great things happening here. We also have the space available for rentals. If you'd like to do a one-time rental, uh, check us out for that as well. We can do shows here. We provide a live broadcast. We've got the equipment. You get to record it. You have a MP3 that you get to share with everyone afterwards, as well as during. It's pretty special. If you would like to support this show in particular, we do have a Patreon set up, and I'm very grateful for all the folks who contribute on a monthly basis, and that's at patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. So thanks to all the listeners out there and everyone out there who works to make this world a more equitable place for absolutely everyone there. And now that we've come to the end of the program, I need to find a song to play. Had a few songs chosen ahead of time, and now I'll have to choose one randomly, but hopefully something that's pretty good. And we'll choose, I'm going to choose a Tribe 8's cover of Rise Above by Black Flag. And also coming up next week on the show, as mentioned earlier... Um, We've got an interview with Stephanie and Teresa, who were the editors of Headcase, the book that Mason and I discussed today on the show, as well as the reading from last month at the San Francisco Public Library at the Hormel Center. And just a lot of really great stories, um, uh, just really beautiful. I can I feel like words don't don't do it service. So I'm really looking forward to sharing the the audio with all you listeners next week. So stay tuned, and we'll be back next week. Have a great week, everybody.
tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Asiento, take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Bryant. Meet friends for a drink, have delicious tapas and a relaxed community atmosphere. Asiento, honestly, is a wonderful place. They have incredible bartenders and board games all over the walls. Trivia on Mondays, Taco Tuesdays, First Wednesday, live jazz, live DJs Thursday, parties. The food is darn good special happy hour prices all night long with your mutiny radio comedy festival ticket march 1st through 5th check out the schedule at www.asientosf.com come take a seat i had a date there and it did not go well but it wasn't the fault of the place they're very nice asiento For a burger, Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Venice. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Everybody should listen to Mutiny Radio at mutinyradio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. Subliminal SF Visual and Auditory Mind Control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF.
Welcome. Bender's Bar and Grill, located at 806 South Van Ness in the Mission District of San Francisco. Your favorite bar with awesome bartenders, rotating local art, and a killer back patio. It's a great place to hang out and play one of their two pool tables or old school pinball machine with a tasty adult beverage. Live music every Saturday for only $5. Bender's brings you face-melting metal and rock and roll. The last Friday of the month, Punk Rock and Schlock delivers super fun karaoke with Aileen. Come on, what's not to like? They even have counter-offer inside, frying up the tots with sexy hot burgers for your face. Open every day at 2 p.m. Their happy hour goes till 7 p.m. Bender's is proud to be a sponsor of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival because they're an awesome community asset to the dirtbags who keep art alive in the mission. Bender's Bar and Grill. Hi, welcome to My Limited View. I am your host, Sergio Novoa. And I'm your co-host, Vanessa Wilkins. Join us every Tuesday from 12 to 2 at mutinyradio.fm as we share stories, our personal stories. And struggles and challenges. And we'll also have guests come in and share their stories. And hopefully through all this, we can expand our view. Or your view. Yes, and there'll be plenty of dick jokes, so don't worry. It's not always going to be heavy. Yeah, I might even share black hair tips. Black hair tips. Don't know anything about it. Sorry. <laughs> All so, on my limited view. Yes, every Tuesday from 12 to 2. Uh, oh, you can if you can also find us on Apple Podcasts. Oh, yeah, and Google Play. And Stitcher. iTunes. Oh, you already said that. TuneIn Radio. Uh, Stitcher, you said that. Spotify. Oh, my God, there's just so many. And Overcast. Um, yes, you can also find us on social media, M as in Mary, L as in Larry, P as in Peter, podcast, MOV podcast is our handle. Until next time, I hope you're enjoying your view. Yes. Bye. Bye. That, that kind of sucked balls. Good evening there, my friends, here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be 
Like in front of an audience? Like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> Mutiny Radio listener, it's that time of year again. March 1st through 5th, it's time for the 4th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. Over 40 comics, 25 shows, 5 days, all here at Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street. 25 shows, 5 days, amazing comics from all over the United States here in San Francisco to entertain you with 25 differently themed shows hosted by local San Francisco comedians bringing you comedians from all over the United States here. Everything will be live, live streaming and podcast post. Get your tickets, $10 a show, 25 shows, a million laughs. It's the fourth annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival brought to you by Benders, Counter Offer and Subliminal SF. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> 